Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore-Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the anthology White Sails Shaking, edited by Ira Henry Freeman. We're on the first story entitled Sharks in the Boatyard, and this is the second part of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel, where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Sharks in the Boatyard continued. By main strength and sweat, we dragged the snark off the wrecked ways and laid her alongside the Oakland City Wharf. The drays brought all the outfit from home, the books and blankets and personal luggage. Along with this, everything else came on board in a torrent of confusion, wood and coal, water and water tanks, vegetables, provisions, oil, the lifeboat and the launch, all our friends, all the friends of our friends and those who claimed to be their friends, to say nothing of some of the friends of the friends of the friends of our crew. Also there were reporters and photographers and strangers and cranks and finally all over clouds of coal dust from the wharf. We were to sail Sunday at 11 and Saturday afternoon had arrived. The crowd on the wharf and the coal dust were thicker than ever. In one pocket I carried a checkbook, a fountain pen, a data and a blotter. In another pocket I carried between one and two thousand dollars in paper money and gold. I was ready for the creditors, cash for the small ones and checks for the large ones, and was waiting only for Roscoe to arrive with the balances of the accounts of the hundred and fifteen firms who had delayed me so many months. And then, and then the inconceivable and monstrous happened once more. Before Roscoe could arrive, there arrived another man. He was a United States Marshal. He tacked a notice on the snark's brave mast so that all on the wharf could read that the snark had been liabled for debt. The marshal left a little old man in charge of the snark and himself went away. I had no longer any control of the snark nor of her wonderful bow. The little old man was now her lord and master and I learned that I was paying him three dollars a day for being lord and master. Also I learned the name of the man who had libeled the snark. It was Sellers. The debt was $232 and the deed was no more than what was expected from the possessor of such a name. Sellers, ye gods, sellers. But who under the sun was sellers? I looked in my checkbook and saw that two weeks before I had made out a check to him for $500. Other checkbooks showed that during the many months of the building of the snark I had paid him several thousand dollars. Then why in the name of common decency hadn't he tried to collect his miserable little balance instead of libeling the snark? I thrust my hands into my pockets, and in one pocket encountered the checkbook and the data and the pen, and in the other pocket the gold money and the paper money. There was the wherewithal to settle this pitiful account a few score times over. Why hadn't he given me a chance? There was no explanation. It was merely the inconceivable and monstrous. To make the matter worse, the snark had been libeled late Saturday afternoon, and though I sent lawyers and agents all over Oakland and San Francisco, neither United States judge, nor United States marshal, nor Mr. Sellers, nor Mr. Sellers' attorney, nor anybody could be found. They were all out of town for the weekend, and so the snark 
did not sail Sunday morning at eleven. The little old man was still in charge, and he said no. And Charmian and I walked out on an opposite wharf and took consolation in the snark's wonderful bow and thought of all the gales and typhoons it would proudly punch. A bourgeois trick, I said to Charmian, speaking of Mr. Sellers and his libel, a petty trader's panic. But never mind, our troubles will cease when once we are away from this and out on the wide ocean. And in the end, we sailed away on Tuesday morning, April the 23rd, 1907. We started rather lame, I confess. We had to hoist anchor by hand because the power transmission was a wreck. Also, what remained of our 70-horsepower engine was lashed down for ballast on the bottom of the snark. But what of such things? They could be fixed in Honolulu, and in the meantime, think of the magnificent rest of the boat. It is true the engine in the launch wouldn't run and the lifeboat leaked like a sieve, but then they weren't the snark. They were mere appurtenances. The things that counted were the watertight bulkheads, the solid planking without butts, the bathroom devices. They were the snark. And then there was greatest of all that noble wind-punching bow. We sailed out through the Golden Gate and set our course south toward that part of the Pacific where we could hope to pick up the northeast trades. And right away, things began to happen. I had calculated that youth was the stuff for a voyage like that of the snark, and I had taken three youths, the engineer, the cook and the cabin boy. My calculation was only two-thirds off. I had forgotten to calculate on seasick youth, and I had two of them, the cook and the cabin boy. They immediately took to their bunks, and that was the end of their usefulness for a week to come. It will be understood from the foregoing that we did not have the hot meals we might have had, nor were things kept clean and orderly down below. But it did not matter very much anyway, for we quickly discovered that our box of oranges had at some time been frozen, that our box of apples was mushy and spoiling, that the crate of cabbages, spoiled before it was ever delivered to us, had to go overboard instanter that kerosene had been spilled on the carrots and that the turnips were woody and the beets rotten, while the kindling was dead wood that would never burn and the coal, delivered in rotten potato sacks, had spilled all over the deck and was washing through the scuppers. But what did it matter? Such things were mere accessories. There was the boat. She was all right, wasn't she? I strolled along the deck and in one minute counted 14 butts in the beautiful planking ordered specially from Puget Sound in order that there should be no butts in it. Also, that deck leaked and it leaked badly. It drowned Roscoe out of his bunk and ruined the tools in the engine room to say nothing of the provisions it ruined in the galley. Also, the sides of the snark leaked and the bottom leaked and we had to pump her every day to keep her afloat. The floor of the galley is a couple of feet above the inside bottom of the snark, and yet I have stood on the floor of the galley trying to snatch a cold bite and been wet to the knees by water churning around inside four hours after the last pumping. Then those magnificent watertight compartments that cost so much time and money, well, they weren't watertight after all. The water moved free as the air from one compartment to another. Furthermore, a strong smell of gasoline from the after compartment leads me to suspect that some one or more of the half-dozen tanks there stored have sprung a leak. The tanks leak, and they are not hermetically sealed in their compartment. Then there was the bathroom with its pumps and levers and sea valves. 
It went out of commission inside the first 24 hours. Powerful iron levers broke off short in one's hand when one tried to pump with them. The bathroom was the swiftest wreck of any portion of the snark. And the ironwork on the snark, no matter what its source, proved to be mush. For instance, the bed plate of the engine came from New York and it was mush. So were the castings and the gears for the windlass that came from San Francisco. And finally, there was the wrought iron used in the rigging that carried away in all directions when the first strains were put upon it. Wrought iron, mind you, and it snapped like macaroni. A gooseneck on the gaff of the mainsail broke short off. We replaced it with the gooseneck from the gaff of the storm trysail, and the second gooseneck broke short off inside 15 minutes of use. And, mind you, it had been taken from the gaff of the storm trysail, upon which we would have depended in the time of storm. At the present moment, the snark trails her mainsail like a broken wing, the gooseneck being replaced by a rough lashing. We'll see if we can get honest iron in Honolulu. Man had betrayed us and sent us to sea in a sieve, but the Lord must have loved us, for we had calm weather in which to learn that we must pump every day in order to keep afloat, and that more trust could be placed in a wooden toothpick than in the most massive piece of iron to be found aboard. As the staunchness and the strength of the snark went glimmering, Charmian and I pinned our faith more and more to the snark's wonderful bow. There was nothing else left to pin it to. It was all inconceivable and monstrous, we knew, but that bow, at least, was rational. And then one evening, we started to heave too. How shall I describe it? First of all, for the benefit of the tyro, let me explain that heaving to is the sea manoeuvre which by means of short and balanced canvas compels a vessel to ride bow on to the wind and sea. When the wind is too strong or the sea is too high, a vessel of the size of the snark can heave to with ease, whereupon there is no more work to be done on deck. Nobody needs to steer. The lookout is superfluous and all hands can go below and sleep or play whist. Well, it was blowing half of a small summer gale when I told Roscoe we'd heave to. Night was coming on. I had been steering nearly all day and all hands on deck, Roscoe and Bert and Charmian, were tired, while all hands below were seasick. It happened that we had already put two reefs in the big mainsail, the flying jib and the jib were taken in, and a reef put in the fore staysail. The mizzen was also taken in. About this time, the flying jibboom buried itself in a sea and broke short off. I started to put the wheel down in order to heave to. The snark at the moment was rolling in the trough. She continued rolling in the trough. I put the spokes down harder and harder. She never budged from the trough. The trough, gentle reader, is the most dangerous position of all in which to lay a vessel. I put the wheel hard down and still the snark rolled in the trough. Eight points was the nearest I could get her to the wind. I had Roscoe and Bert come in on the main sheet. The snark rolled on in the trough, now putting her rail under on one side and now under on the other. Again, the inconceivable and monstrous was showing its grisly head. It was grotesque. Impossible. I refused to believe it. Under double-reefed mainsail and single-reefed staysail, the snark refused to heave too. We flattened the mainsail down. It did not alter the snark's course a tenth of a degree. 
We slacked the mainsail off with no more result. We set a storm trysail on the mizzen and took in the mainsail. No change. The snark rolled on in the trough. That beautiful bow of hers refused to come up and face the wind. Next we took in the reefed staysail. Thus the only bit of canvas left on her was the storm trysail on the mizzen. If anything would bring her bow up into the wind, that would. Maybe you won't believe me when I say it failed. But I do say it failed. And I say it failed because I saw it fail and not because I believe it failed. I don't believe it did fail. It is unbelievable. And I am not telling you what I believe. I am telling you what I saw. Now, gentle reader, what would you do if you were on a small boat rolling in the trough of the sea, a trysail on that small boat's stern that was unable to swing the bow up into the wind? Get out the sea anchor? It's just what we did. We had a patent one and made to order and warranted not to dive. Imagine a hoop of steel that serves to keep open the mouth of a large conical canvas bag and you have a sea anchor. Well, we made a line fast to the sea anchor and to the bow of the snark and then dropped the sea anchor overboard. It promptly dived. We had a tripping line on it, so we tripped the sea anchor and hauled it in. We attached a big timber as a float and dropped the sea anchor over again. This time it floated. The line to the bow grew taut. The trysail on the mizzen tended to swing the bow into the wind, but in spite of this tendency, the snark calmly took that sea anchor in her teeth and went on ahead, dragging it after her, still in the trough of the sea. And there you are. We even took in the trysail, hoisted the full mizzen in its place, and hauled the full mizzen down flat, and the snark wallowed in the trough and dragged the sea anchor behind her. Don't believe me. I don't believe it myself. I'm merely telling you what I saw. Now, I leave it to you. Who ever heard of a sailing boat that wouldn't heave to? that wouldn't heave to with a sea anchor to help it. Out of my brief experience with boats, I know I never did, and I stood on deck and looked on the naked face of the inconceivable and monstrous, the snark that wouldn't heave to. A stormy night with broken moonlight had come on. There was a splash of wet in the air, and up to windward there was a promise of rain squalls, and then there was the trough of the sea, cold and cruel in the moonlight, in which the snark complacently rolled. And then we took in the sea anchor and the mizzen, hoisted the reef staysail, ran the snark off before it and went below, not to the hot meal that should have awaited us, but to skate across the slush and slime on the cabin floor, where cook and cabin boy lay like dead men in their bunks, and to lie down in our own bunks with our clothes on ready for a call and to listen to the bilge water spouting knee-high on the galley floor. In the Bohemian Club of San Francisco, there are some crack sailors. I know because I heard them pass judgment on the snark during the process of her building. They found only one vital thing the matter with her, and on this they were all agreed, namely that she could not run. She was all right in every particular, they said, except that I'd never be able to run her before it in a stiff wind and sea. Her lines, they explained enigmatically, it is the fault of her lines. She simply cannot be made to run, and that is all. Well, I wish I'd only had those crack sailors of the Bohemian Club on board the snark the other night for them to see for herselves that their one vital unanimous judgment absolutely reversed. Run? It is the only thing the snark does to perfection. Run? 
She ran with a sea anchor, fast forward, and a full mizzen flattened down aft. Run. At the present moment, as I write this, we are bowling along before it at a six-knot clip in the northeast trades. Quite a tidy bit of sea is running. There is nobody at the wheel. The wheel is not even lashed and is set over a half-spoke weather helm. To be precise, the wind is northeast. The snark's mizzen is furled. Her mainsail is over to starboard. Her head sheets are hauled flat, and the snark's course is south-southwest. And yet there are men who have sailed the seas for forty years, and who hold that no boat can run before it without being steered. They'll call me a liar when they read this. It's what they called Captain Slocum when he said the same of his spray. As regards the future of the snark. I'm all at sea. I don't know. If I had the money or the credit, I'd build another snark that would heave to. But I am at the end of my resources. I've got to put up with the present snark or quit. And I can't quit. So I guess I'll have to try to get along with heaving the snark too, stern first. I'm waiting for the next scale to see how it will work. I think it can be done. It all depends on how her stern takes the seas. And who knows, but that some wild morning on the China Sea... Some greybeard skipper will stare, rub his incredulous eyes and stare again at the spectacle of a weird, small craft, very much like the snark, hove to, stern first, and riding out the gale. P.S. On my return to California after the voyage, I learned that the snark was 43 feet on the waterline instead of 45. This was due to the fact that the builder was not on speaking terms with the tape line or the two-foot rule. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast. And of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.